So hear the word of God, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that, excuse me, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Praise be to God. May he bless it. Well, we are continuing and returning to that series about the church and what is the nature of the church, what the church is and ought to be in in respect of uh, who we are in the Lord Jesus. And we have considered uh, thus far uh, the church's cornerstone, the Lord Jesus, that foundation upon which we are being built. We have considered the marks of the church and what makes for a church that is laboring faithfully to the Lord uh, from Acts 4 verse 42, uh, sorry, Acts 2 verse 42. Uh, We've considered what our communion in Christ is and how that relates to one another. And we've considered the church's worship and the task of evangelism that is always before us. And we have considered what it is to be the body of Christ and God's temple in the world. And all of those things uh, have brought to us an understanding of the depth, the nature, uh, the work and labor of the church in this world and uh, what it is to be faithful to God in those things. And this morning, we deal with the whole issue of the church militant. And most of you will understand that word. It has military connotations. It's basically the church and her warfare. Uh, To understand uh, the church militant, it's often contrasted with the church triumphant. And when we use those two words, the church militant and the church triumphant, we're not speaking about two different churches We're speaking about the one and same church uh, with the categories of people who have been militant in their earthly life but are now with the church triumphant as they await uh, the resurrection day. Uh, The church triumphant is is, uh, the church uh, of believers whose earthly life has ended 
who's wrestling with sin uh, is over and uh, whose sufferings in life uh, are completed. And they are now at rest in Christ in His presence and enjoying the blessing of God in, in holiness as they await the day of the Lord and the day of resurrection. And that's what we have our eyes fixed on as we are the church militant now in our earthly life. Uh, We are uh, militant in this sense that until the Lord Jesus returns, we are continually engaged in a warfare. We are engaged in what Paul would write in 1 Timothy 6.12, and 2 Timothy 4.7, we are engaged in that good fight of the faith. And it is a fight. It's understanding that in this earthly life, this, this world and, and its hostility and its sinfulness uh, is against us. And we are against it. As the church militant, we understand we have an enemy that is not just resisting God and fighting God, but an enemy who because of its hatred for God, because of his hatred for Christ, hates his church and fights against his church. We're in warfare. I think this is something that the current generation of Western culture has perhaps never experienced before. Some of us who have lived in previous generations have experienced actual and physical war and we understand all of the hardships and sufferings that come with it. Uh, We are in a generation of people, as far as Western nations go, that have really never tasted war (laughs) in, in the last 30 to 40 years. And as we're seeing what goes on in Ukraine and and realizing how quickly uh, oppression and suffering can meet a people, we get a taste of what war is like. Well, the church is at war every day. You, dear Christians, you are at war every day. You just probably don't always realize it. And that's why it's important that we understand what it means to be the church and the church militant. And when we talk about this enmity, this hatred, this warfare that uh, we are in, I I do think it's important to understand it is an enmity that God Himself established. He established it right at the very beginning when man fell into sin, when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden disobeyed God and cast off God's rule and authority over their life so that they could follow the way of Satan himself. That God in cursing Satan set up this hatred, set up this wall of enmity to to guard His people. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed, and he shall crush your head and you will bruise his heel. 
And in establishing that enmity between Satan and his kingdom and his hosts and between Christ and his church, God made it clear that the very most that Satan could do to Christ and thus to his people is bruise the heel that he would be a conquered enemy but he would nonetheless be an enemy facing us all the days of our life. God is the one who separated and, and, and put this wall of hostility between His kingdom here on earth and Satan's realm and power to guard us. You can get an understanding of the uh, constant the continual nature of this of this warfare of this enmity by reading Revelation 12. Uh, whatever your position is on Revelation, understand this: is that it is depicting the militancy, the the warfare that the church is engaged in every single generation of Earth's history till the Lord returns. And that is encapsulated for us in Revelation 12. And the summarizing of, of that nature of our spiritual warfare. Revealing to us the, the hatred that Satan and his hosts have against Christ. And thus have against his church. But in revealing the nature of that warfare... God shows us there in Revelation 12, and I encourage you, read that chapter this afternoon, that our enemy has been conquered by Christ. That the power that Satan himself exercises is a power under the authority and rule of God. We saw that even with Job. And that we, as God's people, engaged in this militancy, engaged in this warfare, we are engaged in the victory that Christ has brought us. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus has has cast down Satan. And, And in understanding that, we realize He's not an enemy who can overcome us. He's an enemy who certainly can oppress us and wage a good warfare against us, but He cannot overcome us. And that is because Christ, our King and our Head, has overcome Him. And Jesus, through His death and His resurrection, has has robbed Satan of any authority to accuse, to condemn, or even to separate us from God's love. And, and this is a great encouragement for us in our uh, warfare. Before I get to the details of that warfare, I want to encourage you in the hope and the glory that you stand in in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand that the victory of Christ is our victory. We have been raised out of spiritual darkness We have been brought out of spiritual deadness. And all of that by by the death and the life uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been brought out of sin's dominion over our life. And we have been brought out of that uh, ability of Satan to hold us in the fear of death. 
There's a victory and triumph that belongs to us. Hebrews 2.14 states that Jesus' death has destroyed Him who had the power of death, the devil. And what is that power that Satan wields with death? The bondage that comes with it. When you die, what happens? Your, your, your soul is separated from your body and, 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 and it wasn't supposed to be that way. But with death, it comes the fear of judgment. And, and, and with judgment is that understanding of what hell is all about. A place of the eternal punishment, a place of, of eternal darkness, a place of eternal torment, a place where, where God in any measure of His mercy and goodness is absent. And Satan holds the lost, the dead, the spiritually dead. He holds them in the fear of death. But Jesus has destroyed that power of Satan over His people. He has released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage because He has broken its sting and power over us. We stand in that victory of the Lord Jesus there's so much to, to embrace in that, in, in, in understanding how Satan has been conquered by Christ and he, and he stands before us as this conquered enemy. But he is an enemy with power still. And he is the enemy that Paul focuses on here in Ephesians 6, which we are confronted with all the days of our life. If you are in Christ, understand this, my friends. That you are engaged in a wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You're engaged in a warfare against Satan himself, who, as... as He talks there about the the shield of faith. Who brings fiery darts against you? Who schemes as he schemed against Job? As he schemed against Adam and Eve? As he schemed against Christ? Who schemes to tempt you? To deny God? uh, To walk in accordance with the philosophies of this world? To walk in your own pride. But our Lord has conquered him. Through his death, he has wiped out any means by which Satan can condemn you for any sin. Through his death, he has borne away the judgment that you deserve from God. And through his resurrection, he has given you new life and a heart and a mind, a soul, that loves God and is able to war against Satan. And that's what it means when the Lord says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The Lord is making it clear 
that His church is going to be built up and it will become complete in that day of triumph and victory when He returns. But all the days that the church is here on the earth until that time, there is a warfare that Satan brings against it, but he's not going to prevail. And so as we we look at this subject about the church being militant, stand in the Lord. And that's what Paul says. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. You're able to stand. You're able to stand even in that evil day because the Lord your God is with you and for you. But don't presume that you stand in your own strength and power. We're in open warfare. And dear Christians, we must recognize every day is a day of warfare. And one of the first things that we see from our text in verses 10 to 12 is that we see the the battleground that we face every day. It's always a thing when military groups meet for conflict It's almost as if they plan the battlefield that they're going to war on. Well, here Paul is making us aware of the battleground that we are on every day. And I want you to think first and foremost of this when when we consider this. I want you to think, where did Job's warfare begin? Did it begin with him waking up one morning and all of a sudden... All of those disasters happened in that one day. Can you imagine having in one day your life completely destroyed? Is that where his warfare began? And we know it didn't. And and Paul, Paul helps us to understand, looking at Job again, before the, the Sabians and the Chaldeans raided his herds and killed his servants, and before that violent, uh, perhaps lightning storm, destroyed all of his flocks and servants, or that, that tornado killed all his children. There was this heavenly spiritual conflict happening. He may not have known it as we do, But Paul here is telling us that there is a warfare that's going on right now that you need to be aware of. And he says there at the end of verse 12, the battleground is in the heavenly places. In the heavenlies. This is the sphere. And and just understand, this phrase is talking about the spiritual realm itself. But this is the sphere into which we have been brought by the grace of salvation and union with Christ. You go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, as as Paul begins to talk about the blessedness uh, of God who, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And where are those spiritual blessings meeting us? Where are they coming from? And he says there, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. And it's the same sphere from which the warfare against us is beginning. You think about election, predestination, adoption, sanctification by the Father. Those have all met us in Christ, in the heavenly places, before they're realized in our lives. 
You get to chapter 2, and he, he brings it out again. In verse 6, we have been raised up with Christ, made to seat, sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there's a, a spiritual nature of our lives that we probably don't always comprehend what it means to live in union with the resurrected, ascended Christ. But every day, what is God doing with us? He is, because we are in the Lord, He is seating us around His throne in those heavenly places. He is our God who is with us in in ways that we don't see. And again in chapter 3, verse 10, as He speaks about the church's access and boldness to the Father through Christ. He says, this is in the heavenly places. Do you realize, dear friends, every time you bow your head and pray to God and cast your cares upon Him, do you realize where that is happening? It it may be happening in your bedroom. It may be happening at your kitchen table. It may be happening here in this physical place. But it's happening in the heavenlies too. That's where you're meeting with God in Christ Jesus. We, we, we're not being mystical or, or wrongly spiritual about this life. This is the reality of our life in Christ. We're with God in the heavenly places. And it's from this same sphere that the battle, the spiritual battle, occurs. And though... It is sovereignly controlled as we saw with Job. Satan still comes to to torment. And and what we gain from from chapter 1 of Job is this understanding. Satan can do nothing against God's people without the authority and the sovereignty of God. But he certainly can, under that authority, do a lot against us. And that is the place where Satan's hatred and enmity begins and is exercised against you. And then, then it overflows into your daily life. (laughs) The second aspect of this battleground is that what is going on in the heavenly places now becomes a reality in your life. Even there in verse 12 when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's not saying that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood itself. He, he wants us to understand a spiritual reality. But that spiritual reality shows itself in your daily lives. Again, look to Job. The spiritual battle was realized when the Sabians and Chaldeans took all of his possessions and slaughtered his servants. And when the storms and the disasters came upon Job and took away his flocks and servants and all of his children, that the reality of what you experience in trials and difficulties, in sufferings and hardships, in afflictions and infirmities, in persecutions and oppression, in all of those things, they become real in your daily life. 
You think about how Paul, as he suddenly transitions from chapter 4 and 5 where he deals with our, our daily life, ordinary areas of our life and focusing on on family and relationships and issues of submission and authority. And then he comes and he says, finally, do you understand that in all of this there's a warfare happening against you? Behind the daily routines of life, the flesh and blood, our principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness and trials and temptations, they come upon you and they're real. You think about just even in in a situation where everything seems to be going fine and and you meet up with a friend and then suddenly an accident happens and your life gets changed so dramatically. Do you realize that's a battleground in the hands of Satan? And then the third aspect of this battleground is what Paul calls there in verse 13, the evil day. The evil day. I don't think this refers so much to an end of time conflict as much as it refers to present times and days in people's lives. Again, look at Job. In one day, in one day, the Sabians and Chaldeans attacked and took everything away. In that same day, a horrendous storm and perhaps a a tornado took away all his flocks and killed all his children. There's nothing in our eyes good about such a day, is there? And what was all the attempt of Satan with all of that evil that fell upon Job? What was, what was, what was it that he was trying to do? He was trying to tempt Job to curse God. You think about this with trials in your life. When one thing after another, after another, after another happen, and, and you are there overwhelmed by all of the tragedy, the loss, the struggles, the troubles, the afflictions. And what is it that begins to go through your mind? Where's God? What's God doing? I thought God loved me. Has He forsaken me? The evil day. And for David... Not just for Job, but for David. Think about the evil day for him. Perhaps most of you are thinking about Bathsheba. There's one even more clear than that. Second Chronicles 21. The evil day came when Satan lifted up the pride in David's heart and said, David, you by your strength have conquered your enemies. Go and number your armies. And just... Brag to the world how great you are. The pride of his heart was lifted up. And and he sent out Job to uh, number his armies. And even Job, his military leader, who was not a very faithful man to God, (laughs) could look at this and say, this is evil. As you are trying to rob God of the glory of His hand in your life. And in that evil day, 
79,000 of his military was destroyed. Or for Jesus, in Luke 22, verse 53, it's written that the hour of the power of darkness came. And Jesus was betrayed by friends. He was denied by loyal disciples. He was forsaken by all who followed Him. And Satan pursued Him to death. And why do I put all of that before you? Because my friends, that evil day can be upon us any moment where Satan will take even those things that are common to our lives. Just the very basic struggles that we have with, with lusts, with coveting, with pride. And Satan begins his work to bring together uh, our, our inward desires and opportunities for sin to arise. And, and that warfare be, becomes even more great and we're not aware that we're in a battlefield. And suddenly Satan overwhelms us with evil. Think about this, just to make it even more tangible. Think about how many people have had a bad experience within a church and they have turned away from church because of it. And not recognizing that there is an enemy that's striving to get them to do that very thing. And I use that example because this is about the church. Or a fallen leader. And how Satan can use the evil of that day when it is revealed to make people say, well, there you can't believe anyone. And the church is useless. You see, the evil days are, are around us more than we realize. Or you wake up one morning and you have this conflict within your home. Oh, you've got to work through it. And it's easy, isn't it, in those times for sin upon sin to, to flow. Or you, you have something that interrupts your education as COVID has these past two years for many, and your plans for your future are all turned around. What am I going to do? I've spent time on this because, my friends, this is a battleground. And it begins in those heavenly places, and then it comes out in our daily lives to a point where an evil day rises. And this happens as a cycle more than we realize. And what Paul is doing here as he brings our attention to that, he's, he's helping us understand this is the warfare that you are engaged in. This is spiritual warfare. It's not you fighting a demon. <laughs> it's not you just simply uh, naming a demon of, of, of a particular sin and saying, okay, I, I pray God subdue this, cast it out. That's not the spiritual warfare that we're facing. This is our daily lives as God's people becoming a battleground for our faith in God where Satan wants you to curse God. My friends, you face this warfare each day. The church faces it every day. 
And it brings us to to this point of the enemy that we face, secondly. As, as Paul brings our attention to the battleground, he points us to the enemy that we face. And, and to be sure, understand this, that it is a supernatural enemy. Satan is our ultimate adversary. In fact, that's what the name Satan means. The adversary. He is the devil. That word devil, when you read it in Scripture, it means accuser. He's called Apollyon. Destroyer. And and that's the reality of the enemy that we face. A supernatural enemy who does have power and who is given authority by God to work behind the flesh and blood that we face every day are these spiritual forces. And and we, we have to see that. Even as a church, we have to understand we're not just meeting an ungodly government. We're, we're not facing uh, wicked people who, who just despise the church. Or in your own private life, it isn't just that bully that you meet. It isn't just that immoral movie that captures your attention. There is an enemy that is scheming against you. And we have to be aware of that. Jesus speaks this of Satan, of, of who he is and what he is like when he confronts the Pharisees. He, he recognizes who is behind them. And he says there in John 8:44, "You are of your father, the devil, the desires of your father you want to do." Here's how he reveals Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. He is powerful. And he is very strategic. Satan hates God. He hates Christ. He hates the church. And he exercises many strategies to destroy. I just very quickly set them before you, but just just so you're aware how he works and why we, most of all, why we need truth and humility to guard us. Satan uses lies and false teachings. 2 Corinthians 11 There's another chapter to read. He can disguise himself as an angel of light, but come with those twisting words of deception to make you follow a lie rather than the truth. He comes and meets you with temptations to compromise. He did this with the Lord Himself in Matthew 4. What's a little harm in turning that rock into bread? You're hungry. You haven't eaten. <laughs> What's a little harm in, in, in bragging about God being with you? Jump off the temple. You don't need to take that narrow way to do God's work. I hold the glory of the nations. I'll give you a comfortable life. <laughs> he utilizes 
divisive, quarreling spirits. And these aren't demonic spirits. These are our souls. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good argument? Is there such a thing? <laughs> but it's easy in, in our relationships with one another to become quarreling and divisive in the church. We want everyone to believe in the rightness that we believe. And when they don't, we want to point it out. And not with the blessing of, of encouraging them in their faith in the Lord, but, but with them knowing that we're right. <laughs> it's not that blatant. It never is. But that's the underlying of it. We heard from 1 Peter Five unsubmissive, proud spirits. You know, we can do a lot in the name of our conscience. But is the Lord the Lord of that conscience? Or is it like Adam and Eve, where we want to lord it? Anger and wrath, Ephesians 4. How the devil gets a foothold through anger and wrath in our lives. 2 Corinthians 2, a bitter, unforgiving spirit. How many of us have at one time or another, maybe not so blatantly, but insidiously said, I'll never forgive that person. It, 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 it comes out in so many ways. Utilizing the lusts of our, of our hearts like he did with Judas, the love of money. And he sold out his Savior. Or with Peter, the boastful pride of the heart. I will never fail my God. My friends, he's a very strategic enemy. And he has many weapons of warfare. And that is why, as we see in the last place, that the Lord comes and he says, you need to stand in Christ. We do not face this enemy in our own strength. We cannot face this enemy in our own strength or wisdom or ability. And that's why we are called here in these verses to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This isn't self-empowerment. This is us recognizing of ourselves we cannot face this enemy. What we need is what we gain from God in Christ. And what is loosely set before us here in verses 14 to, to 17, the, the armor of God, this is what God is saying, this is what Christ has given you. This is what you stand in. You stand in truth. Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have full access to the Father in all purity and holiness. We have a truth which enables us to flee to God and to cast our cares on Him and, and be able to find from Him that comforting help that we need in that day of evil. When you find your soul wrestling with a temptation to be able to come in truth to God the Father, to come to Him in Christ and say, God, help me! This temptation is great! And God comes and meets you. 
We have righteousness in Christ. We have in Christ a full pardon and acceptance from God. And you think, well, how does that meet me in the evil day? How does that meet you when you find yourself struggling with another sin uh, that you've struggled with already and you're in that temptation and that sin is starting to overwhelm you and you begin to hear the whispers of the evil one? You can't be forgiven again. He's already forgiven you five times. And then the Spirit of God comes and says, no, you've got a righteousness that has opened the way for God's mercy to meet you every time. You have the gospel of peace in whom we have hope. We have faith in Christ and knowing that His work in our place on the cross is what has quenched every sin in our lives that fight against the fiery darts that would accuse us that would remind us that would cause despair that would try to quench your confidence in the Lord's care our faith says God does care for me we have our salvation I think of with salvation I think of that that hymn before the throne of God it has that verse when Satan tempts me to despair tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin this is in whom we stand we have the word of God that we are called to hide in our heart The Word of God that comes and meets us in temptation's hour to remind us that God's way is true and right. Trust Him. But most of all, my friends, we have prayer. And that's where Paul brings us at the end of all of this. That the greatest means of grace, being strong in the Lord, is being able to come uh, in in that Spirit's power to cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Peter wrote? When he said, cast all your care upon Him. He cares for you because Satan's a roaring lion wanting to devour you. Flee to God. Cry out to Him. Pray to Him. He is the one who will be your, your strength and your power. We have... In all of this, we have our Lord who stands faithfully interceding for us. He is the one who is ensuring that our faith will never fail. And I close with these words from Luke 22. In verse 31 and 32, where, where Peter, you know, boasting how he would stand with the Lord and never fail. And Jesus reminds him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That's what Satan Satan does every day. <laughs> Let me at him. Let me at him. <laughs> we have the Lord 
And what is it that the Lord said to Peter? And, 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 and what is it about the Lord that we know is true for us? He ever lives to make intercession for us that we should be saved to the uttermost. I have prayed for you. <laughs> and I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. <laughs> this is strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. My friends, that's where we are called to stand in this warfare. Do you stand in the Lord? When you look at all the troubles of life that have already met you and knowing that many more are ready there to meet you, do you stand in the Lord to face them or do you stand in your own strength? Do you know what it is in your heart to say, Christ is my Savior. Christ is my Lord. Christ is the one who holds me fast. I shall never be loose from His hands. Do you know that? Do you believe in the Lord? Have you put your hope and trust in Him for salvation? Do you understand what His death on the cross means for your life even today? That He becomes the, the guardian of your soul. And the one who keeps you. My friends, we are in warfare. We face an enemy that is greater than ourselves. If you are in Christ, you face an enemy who has already been defeated. And who can do nothing against you out of the Father's will. Stand in the Lord. Be strong in His power and might. Let us pray. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, these are weighty things for us to consider. As we read Your Word, as we contemplate the life of other servants who have gone before us, as we even look to Christ, we understand that in every case there was an enemy meeting each one. And that enemy still meets us today. 